I have very clear memories, as I'm sure some of you might, of church potlucks when I was a child. They were in the basement, of course. There was orange tang. That is, I'm glad you don't know what that is. <laughs> it's orange juice made from powder. It's kind of like Kool-Aid. Often there were sandwiches and jello salad. Always there was a rush of children and much jostling to be closest to the front of the line. Because if you wait, the best things are going to be gone. There might be no cake, or at the very least, there will be no frosting flowers left. (laughs) Well, at the church in Corinth, there was probably no basement. It is this recollection that came to mind as I read the story, or as I read this letter from Paul to the Corinthians, mainly because of the way that Paul addresses the church in Corinth. When I was writing this, more than once I almost wrote children as I intended to write members, because that is the way, that's the tone that Paul takes with the members at the church in Corinth. What, he says, Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. Condemn, yes, that's a better word. Hey, you kids! I expect better behavior from you. Didn't I teach you to share? I have taken this tone more than once. Uh, Possibly even with the children in the foyer at snack time. (laughs) Naomi knows. Paul is not pastoral in this regard. He is parental. When thinking of the shared meal of the Corinthian church, I also remembered many other shared meals that I have eaten in basements, or in sunny foyers, or in homes, or backyards. In Corinth, they ate together every time the church gathered. We hear in Acts that it was the practice of the early church to fellowship, to pray together, to follow the teachings of the apostles, and to break bread. Like them, the Mennonite church, Uh, Joe and I and Naomi sometimes worshipped with in South Korea when we lived there for a year, had a meal together every time we gathered. It was always simple, usually rice and kimchi and seaweed and maybe some other side dishes. And Sung Han, one of the members with whom I happened to have gone to seminary, always made delicious pour-over coffee. It was a rich time of fellowship where we were always welcomed even though we rarely, if ever, brought anything to contribute to the meal. In the Corinthian church, it was a potluck, sort of. It was certainly the case where everyone who came was, could bring something of the resources they had. But the church in Corinth, like the city, reflected the fact that the wealthy were very, very wealthy and had many resources and many things that they could bring to the table And they also had a lot of time to kill, time that they could spend in leisurely 
relaxing at the table together. And they had this space. It was their homes, the wealthy, in which the church gathered to meet. So the elites would gather around the table, and the whole group could meet and get the party started, eating the best food and the best wine, even becoming drunk, as Paul reflects in his letter, so that when the others, the poor, the laborers, perhaps even the slaves, gathered together, there was little left, and they had little to contribute. So you can see how this might have been distressing and caused some conflict in the church. Paul's position is absolutely and firmly on the side of the poor in this congregation. His parental tone, his condemnation, is directed at the privileged few in Corinth. And I can imagine that it was a tone they may not have heard directed at them too often. When you are the one in power, you are the one who gets to take that tone with people. Should I commend you, Paul says? I do not. I just, like, this is the time when I imagine that, like, grimacing face emoji, like. (laughs) And this is not the only time he takes this tone in this letter to Corinth. He is not easy on them. The early missionary churches, the churches that Paul planted and grew and encouraged, did not have the benefit, as we do, of four Gospels, stories about Jesus, to learn from. And they don't have the proximity that the church in Jerusalem, the original church, had, and the relationships with people who walked with Jesus in life. So maybe we can give them a little bit of a pass. A little bit. But we know that they do have teaching from Paul and possibly others who say to them, I received from the Lord what I also handed to you. And then Paul goes on to share, to remind them again of Jesus at the table with his disciples. Reminds them of Jesus sharing his last meal of those instructions that we hear every time we share communion with each other. This is the cup, a new covenant in my blood. This is the bread that is my body. Remember me whenever you eat and drink them. And so, Corinthians, chew on this. When you gather with your cronies, gorging on rich food and getting drunk, How is that remembering Jesus? Now, there are lots of ways of of interpreting communion. That's one of the reasons it is such a rich ritual in the church, because of the many ways of understanding it. We have the narrative way, where we recall the traditions, the stories of feeding and sharing food and provision throughout Scripture. Or it's symbolic, the understanding of the meal giving us new life, the foretaste of God's abundant kingdom. But at a very basic level, sharing communion is sharing bread. It is nutrition. It is real food for real hungry people. And when the Corinthians came together to share the meal, some people were not getting their share. They were not happy because they were hungry. 
there are economic consequences to communion. They are economics that are not what anyone in Corinth would have been used to. Corinth, as we've said a number of times already, is an economy where people own other people. An economy where money buys status, where you buy yourself into debt to gain position, where the wealth and hierarchy are intertwined. And our world, 2,000 years later, is a little more subtle about it, but maybe, as Megan said, not really so much different. What Paul is reminding the Corinthian church is that when they gather together and eat their common meal before or during worship, their meal together, their entire life together should reflect the economy of God's kingdom. Not a kingdom, in fact, but a leveled place where everyone has enough. We know that ethnic differences did not divide the church. It was a diverse church. People from all over the Mediterranean world and both people who would have been Jewish, people who were Greek and from all over the place. And that was not keeping themselves keeping them from understanding themselves as inheritors of the stories of Jesus. Inheritors of God's provision and abundance. So Paul says, remember who is the head of that family of which you now find yourself a part. This is the family meal, and Jesus is the head of the family. No one but Jesus is serving you. You are one body with him. His blood, as you take that glass of wine, is now flowing in your your veins. Uh, If you were part of this congregation about a decade ago, or maybe even if you weren't, you may have read the book Take This Bread by Sarah Miles. When Sarah describes for her very first time taking communion as an atheist who just walked into the church off the street with just curiosity about what this place was, she describes taking her first communion and she says this, that impossible word, Jesus, lodged in me like a crumb. I said it over and over to myself as if the repetition would help me understand it. I had no idea what it meant. I didn't know what to do with it. But it was realer than any thought of mine or even any subjective emotion. It was as real as the taste of bread and wine and the word was indisputably part of my body now, as if I'd swallowed a radioactive pellet that would outlive my own flesh. She had no idea what it meant then, but she came to understand that the meal that she participated in that that Sunday morning was only the beginning of sharing. She came to worship and then lead a congregation that not only fed each other during communion, but turned their communion table into a table that fed their community, literally offering food to their neighbors as a part of a food pantry. So when it comes to sharing food, how do we take what Jesus has handed to Paul and make it our own? How does what we share at our table lodge itself in us? 
I don't think our potluck is a place we can learn. Our potluck table always has more than enough. And we don't mind the children going first. And there's always plenty to share with people who show up off the street and have brought nothing. Guess what? I know that from experience. Because often I'm a big mooch at potlucks. So I enlarge the lens. The economic lens by which we look at all of our resources and how we share them. This is where we begin to extrapolate. When this letter is written to a very specific congregation into a specific context, Paul sides very specifically with those who have less power, those without position, those who have fewer material resources, and it asks those with wealth to put away their privilege. Okay, so that could be a message for us too. The message I hear is leave all that stuff at home. I mean, Paul literally says, eat at home. This is where I feel the message hits me in examining what is my privilege, what are the resources that I have that I need to put aside, that I need to share in a different way. We've been talking a lot about race in our congregation recently, and that's a very obvious one as I look at myself as a privileged white woman and think about how do I use or put aside that privilege. And as a congregation, we're heading into a season of very specific discernment about our capital resources. I pray that these questions may be before us. What do we do with all that we have? And how do we practice communion economics? May we share our wealth in the way that Jesus shared bread. May what we have be a gift. Amen.